Well, there you are, folks. We begin a new series today, so it's a great time to be here in person or to engage with us online. So glad that you're in the house or at your house, as we keep saying here. This series, Trending, we're asking this question, asking several questions, but chief among them, we're asking, uh, d- does it seem that everything is trending from bad to worse, and then what do we do? How do we, how do we live then? Not just locally, we've got issues uh, from water and such, and we've got, uh, obviously, regional and national and global issues, but there's also personal. And we hope that in this series, over these four weeks, as we look at an ancient letter, uh, Peter, from Peter, uh, to the uh, first church there, uh, churches scattered, Christians scattered, disciples scattered, that uh, this will bring some uh, great relief, some great understanding, some insight uh, to you. Perspective is huge. Ever, uh, not You haven't necessarily seen the problem go away because problems are awfully persistent, aren't they? But you just get some perspective. And that, if there's one word I hope that uh, is delivered over these four weeks uh, from this letter, from this series trending, it'll be perspective, that you'll get a perspective uh, that you need to, to move forward, uh, to to walk in this life, even in the midst of things that are uh, pretty tough. So we're going to, in a moment, turn to First Peter, First Peter chapter 1. If you have a Bible, if you brought one, then I would love for you to open there. We will have it on the screen. I don't have my Bible with me, but I'm going to read from the screen uh, like so many of you. But before First Peter, uh, back up again, turn there, but uh, backing up a little bit, let's go kick it back to the old. In Numbers chapter 13, Moses, we can learn a lot about faith and God and walking with God and leading others. We can learn about mercy and failure and redemption from the great life uh, of Moses. And Moses in Numbers 13, he sends out 12 scouts. Anybody, you weren't a starter, you were like me in football, you you never started, but you're on the scout team. So Moses sends out, yeah, there's my people out there. I feel you, you feel me, scout team. Well, Moses sends out 12 scouts and 10 of them come back and they give a report. He sent the scouts out to look at the promised land, scout it out, and then come back after you've done reconnaissance and give us a report. And any leader asks for this. When you give us a report, give us some recommendations. How this could go down, what do you see out there? And 10 came back. You may know this. And when 10 came back to report and give their recommendations, they were frightened. They said, we cannot go forward. The risk is too great and we are too weak. But two came back and they said the opposite. They said, we cannot go back. The opportunity is too great and, and God is too big in this and too strong. The absolute opposite. And as a lot of us know, those two scouts who came back with faith and optimism and hope, that's what we're going to talk about today. They came back with hope. You know their names, Joshua and Caleb, and they became heroes they became heroes of the faith, and as you're probably tuned in, uh, they, those two names, Joshua and Caleb, have been, year after year, two of the most popular baby names ever given. We probably got some in the house, got, someone watch, got some watching uh, from home. Now, the 10 other scouts who said the opposite, the ones who didn't say, we can't go forward, the ones who said, we, we, we got to go backwards, the risk is too great, we are too small, those 10, I mean, even by, look, even Bible people, we got a few Bible people in the house, like the Bible people keep me straight. Acts 17, 11, they search the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Even the Bible people in the house, even a few of you who are seminary educated, you can't name these 10 scouts. Nobody can, right? Here they are, names on the screen. Here are the 10 scouts, Egal, Gadi, Palti, Sether, Gadiel, Amiel, Hashea, Guala, Nabi, and Shamua. 
and nobody names their kids these, right? Anybody pregnant? Anybody thinking about a baby? Anybody going to drop one of these names? Instant, well, last one looks like maybe a baby well, but uh, y'all don't know those names, do you? Nobody's going to name their kids these. Now, we do name, what are we talking about today? Hope. But what we do name our kids Hope. We lead a small group. A couple years ago, it looked a little differently. We had two uh, of the six couples, the wives had the name Hope in them. One Hope moved to 30A down in Florida. The other Hope had twins. We'll see if she still has Hope over these few years. But nobody named, we, we name people, name women Hope, but we don't name people Despair. And in this, we see we see some things. We see some people, and this is what hope does. Hope says, in spite of some stuff, we're going to move forward. And despair says, mm -mm, we can't go forward. We're going to fall back. As we talk about hope from 1 Peter today, 1 Peter 1, I want to share with you three realities of hope, three things that are true about hope. Number one is this. Hope does three things. First, it lays the foundation of your personality. If you walk in the room and someone has hope or you sense that someone has hope, there's going to be eagerness and expectation there. The person's going to breathe life. There's a beautiful psalm. I was reading it on Wednesday morning. I needed to kneel before the Lord on Wednesday morning. And Psalm 3 and verse 3, uh, the prayer is offered. David offers this prayer. God, you're my glory and you're the lifter of my head. How about that? So there's a popular sports clip where someone has failed going up and down the court basketball and uh, they failed, missed some shots, cost the team, big, made a big mistake, critical late in the game. And this player's doing this and someone comes up, y'all seen this? Someone comes up behind him, real simple, and just what, just listen right here, puts the index finger under the chin, puts a, a hand on the back and is just saying, hey, lift your head up. And that's what, that's, that's, that's our God of hope. Let me, let me stop here because I, I don't know if I'm going to say anything good past this. But just right here, listen, I don't, I don't want to miss this. That's your God today. And your God may be simply saying to you, uh, putting his finger, his hand on you and lifting you up and saying, I want to lift up your head. Because you've been downcast. Psalm 42, why am I so downcast? Oh, my soul. You ever talk to yourself? The psalmist does. Why are you so downcast? Oh, my soul. And God is a lifter and hope does that it does that in our god it does it in us and we are like god when we have hope and when we impart hope when we possess it and when we impart it when we experience it and when we express it we are like god and i love to be around people that are have an eagerness and an expectation that lift people up and that's what hope will do and it lays the foundation of your personality second thing that hope does it does three things i'm telling you this morning it dictates the purpose of your life what you hope in determines what you it dictates what you live for what you live for dictates what you're hoping in you could flip that i can tell about people i can mine the reservoirs the deep recesses of my own heart and see what i'm hoping in and that shapes the purpose of my life the third thing that hope does is it determines your ability to endure oh hope bringers hope possessors those who are 
full of it. Those who are, maybe a better way to say it, is filled with it, Romans 15, 13. Those who are filled with hope, we serve a God of hope, and those who are filled with it have the ability to cling tightly, to clutch tenaciously, to keep going even in the midst of things that don't look good. It could be bleak, this series, things are trending in the wrong direction, but we don't give up hope. Some people wait for circumstances to bring them hope, and some people bring hope into their circumstances. And when you have hope, let me tell you, you can endure. You can endure. We're going to see that in the Word in a minute. And then I want that to intersect with your life to see maybe where you are today, for real. But hope helps us. It lays the foundation of your personality. It dictates the purpose of your life. It determines your ability to endure. Can you endure? Are you going to get through this? Let me be real. I have two friends. One in town, one out of state. And these two friends... Every single day, I'm calling them or texting them to check on them. Praying for them to get through this. And I believe that you can. Hope can turn to boredom or lack of hope can turn to boredom, which can turn to cynicism, which ultimately can turn to despair. Nobody won gold medals like Michael Phelps. Nobody in such a short time, received so much fame and accolades athletically. And uh, after his second DUI, he decided to get real. He was experiencing depression and anxiety and terrible isolation from his family. And he didn't know if he had any hope. He didn't know if he could move forward. He spoke about the recurrent thoughts of suicide. Check out this clip from an ESPN interview recently. Phelps also buried himself in a book Ray Lewis had given him, The Purpose Driven Life. It's turned me into believing that there is a power greater than myself and there is a purpose for me on this planet. Second, third day he got in and he called me. He was like, I, man, this book is crazy. He was like, the things that's going on, oh my gosh, my brain is... Bro, I'm, 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 I cannot thank you freaking enough, man. Like, you saved my life. And so that was the moment when I started to hear he coming out of it. He, he, will, he will make it. And then he started calling me with things he was reading from the book, and I was like, it's sinking in. For a long time, I thought I was the bring the family back together, baby. My therapist said, well, you failed. How does that feel? And then I read this, and I was like, you know what? <laughs> I think it helped me when I was in a place where I needed the most help. The lessons learned in those pages and in therapy convinced Phelps to try to rebuild his relationship with his father, Fred. They were going to have a family week and I was invited to come spend the time with him, which I immediately jumped on. RSVP, I'll be there. Why? He's my son. I love him. I was shocked. I wasn't even going to invite him to family week. I just didn't think he would come. And I, I guess it was to the point where I was just like, why do I just want another no in my life? I was apprehensive is not the word. Maybe scared. Not at what I would find. 
but how I would be received, which actually, I, it was fear that was unfounded. Because we saw each other, we shook hands, threw our arms around each other, gave a big hug. A lack of hope, the Michael Phelps story reminds us, can lead us, it can lead us into isolation. It can lead us to a lack of reconciliation in our relationships. Why go forward? Why go forward when it seems so hopeless? Why not just be alone? Do you have hope this morning? What is your hope quotient? I want to show you, backing up Gina on the slides a little bit, I want to show you three pictures that remind me that we are hopers, that we are natural hopers. This was at 4.30 yesterday. There's a wedding. Look at Daniel Wagner uh, looking so dapper there, performing the ceremony right here on this stage, of course. Her wedding, they, these two stand there and they, they have hope for the future. A wedding demonstrates this. Let me show you another picture that went down at 6.30 last night. There's Sam and Meredith right here. Now, Sam lied. He's a Christian, but he lied to Meredith. And Meredith thought that uh, they're sitting back here. Just wave to us, uh, those in the house. They're a little bit higher. Come on, be proud. You're going to be married for a lifetime, right? Sam and, and Meredith thought they were going to dinner with Susan and I. We lied a little bit. They didn't know Susan was, uh, she didn't know Susan was in Austin, Texas this weekend. And uh, Sam came right in here. Guys, man, I was, I peeped on y'all, by the way. I was a third floor looking down. I got a video of y'all walking in. But uh, Sam got down on a knee. And uh, how long should Sam stay on a knee? Forever. That's exactly right. Forever. But they have hope. A wedding says we have hope. An engagement says we have hope. A baby says we have hope. You act like you care. This is my new nephew, Lucas Tejada, who was born. He's watching the sermon today from Austin, Texas, and Susan uh, was with him. Lucas, yeah, seven pounds, six ounces. And of course, a baby screams, screams, a baby screams. But a baby says hope, an engagement, a wedding, a baby. Hope, hope, hope. There's something here. There's something that says life needs to move forward. But how are you today in your hope quotient? The Michael Phelps story reminds us of how, over time, life can chip away at that. And what we hide and what recurs in us, the recurring sins and debilitations, can lead us into a life of potential despair and possibly ultimate despair. And so this letter, I promise you, we're going to read it in a minute. This letter was written by Peter. And I love the story of Peter. Because uh, some of you know me and you know that I identify with Peter in many ways. But Peter, I think one of his most beautiful moments was in Matthew 16, where Jesus affirms his identity. Y'all know that. Hey, who do you say that I am? And thou art the Christ. And then Jesus says to him, you are Petra, you are Peter. Upon this rock, I will build my church. Jesus is calling him out. Uh, as a rock, as somebody steady when he knew that he would be anything but, but ultimately he believed in his potential. Do you believe in people's potential? Hopeful people believe in the potential of others. Cynical, hopeless people just see people in their problems. But Jesus believed in Peter. In Matthew 16, we see that. But Matthew 26 is Peter at his worst. Jesus was was prophesying. It was the, the eve of the night of his arrest and his crucifixion. And he was telling them reality. And a good leader does that. A good leader doesn't air A good leader doesn't paint a rosy picture. A good leader tells you what's real. And Jesus, quoting from uh, Zechariah, says, uh, quoting, that when I strike the shepherd, the sheep of the flock will scatter. He knew. He knew what he was on the precipice of. But Peter's like, hey, nobody's going to strike the shepherd. You're my shepherd. You're my quarterback. You're my quarterback. Nobody's going to strike the shepherd. 
And let me tell you, if they do, this sheep ain't going to scatter. And Peter was saying in his own words, hey, though they deny you, though all deny you, I will not. And Jesus looked back at him, knowing the prophecy, knowing how the story would unfold, and said, you will deny me three times before the rooster crows. And when Peter, some of the saddest words in all the gospel narratives, in all the Bible, when Peter heard the rooster crow, it says that he went and he wept bitterly. And that's what sin can do. When you're not sure how to wash away the sin of your life, when guilt turns to shame, conviction of your sin is not dealt with, you can go and you can weep bitterly. And that's Peter. When we talk about hopelessness, Peter is someone good to write about hope. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? And for him to weep bitterly. But there's this time when Jesus later would look at him. Could you just imagine for a moment the gaze of Jesus? on the one who had boasted, but after the boastedness, boasting is the brokenness. And Jesus looks him straight in the eyes and puts him back in the game. Peter would be weeks away from preaching a sermon about the resurrected Jesus where over a few thousand people would be saved in one day. That's a pretty good start, isn't it? And that's pretty good redemption. So this is the man, Peter, writing. And Peter, he went from on the after the arrest of the crucifixion he was cowardly he was hiding in the shadows and then jesus said i'm not done with you jesus says that to us and he's saying it to some of you today i am not done with you the enemy who comes to steal kill and destroy is telling you that your work is done and jesus is saying i'm not done with you in fact truly lifting the head the best could be ahead and peter writes to churches this was A.D. 60-ish, and in A.D. 64 is a pretty significant year in history. If you studied the Greco-Roman world, you know that in A.D. 64, there was the fire of Rome, and the, the, the most powerful man on the planet was Nero. He was the emperor, and guess what? Billy Joel made a song about this, we didn't start the fire. But guess what? Nero started the fire, and Nero burned. Oddly enough, he burned so much of the city, but his estate... His palatial estate remained unscathed. Oddly enough, some of his best friends, their estates remained unscathed. So you could imagine the Roman people became very suspicious. Nero called in his marketing team. And he, they, they collectively devised a plan, the creatives. They devised a plan because the people of Rome were suspicion, suspicious. What story would they tell? They needed a scapegoat. When you could be caught in your trespasses and sin, what do you do? You look for somebody to blame. Some of you are really good at it. And Nero needed someone to blame. And so his PR marketing team said, let's, let's call out the new religion. Let's blame the Christians. And so the Christians of the first century, the early believers, were scapegoated. They were blamed. In fact, there were a few specific charges. Chief among them was that this new religion was not good for Rome. It wasn't good for Rome. And there were two charges, very specifically, that history tells us. One is that these Christians, these disciples of Jesus Christ, they were cannibals. Were they, what, what in the world, what, uh, how in the world would they get that idea? Well, they drank the blood of Christ. They ate the body of their Savior. Another charge that Nero and his PR team brought against them, not only were they cannibals, but they had incestual relationships. Uh, why in the world would that charge stick? Or how could they, how could that accusation get any traction behind it well they loved each other deeply and they called each other brothers and sisters and had fond affection 
in a familial way in, in, in family situations. And so those charges, they tried to get them to stick. So the Christians that Peter is writing this letter to, many of them lost their lives, uh, were about to, or the, many of them, I should say, fled from Rome. Because if you're the target of the most powerful person in the world and that a powerful person, especially in ancient times, is angry at you, you flee. And they fled, most of them, to what is modern-day Turkey. They were displaced. They were homeless. They had lost their homes, lost family in many ways, lost their inheritance, and they're living as strangers in a foreign land. You might say that it wasn't trending good for them. You could say that their nightly newscast was awful. And to that, Peter writes this letter. Let's look at it now. First Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. And Peter, by the way, uh, I'm going to try to zoom through this. We'll see how I do. Gina, stay with me if you can. Uh, Peter wrote this. There was no punctuation. It was one big run-on sentence. Can you imagine? We put numbers and letters and colons and semicolons and all that in there. But Peter just wrote it. Some would say he, he wrote it like he lived. He just ran fast. So I'll try to do that. First Peter one. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ of the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is, though it is tested by fire, may be found a result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not know, not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is expressible and filled with glory obtaining the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls i did better in private than i did in public i need some auxiliary oxygen anybody but here's peter i didn't mean to be irrelevant there but you know go back and you read it uh, later study it on your own we'll be here for a few weeks in this in this letter but here's peter rolling some important truth and remember his story and remember what was trending globally it was awful and personally, oh, the broken, the boasting that led to brokenness, that led to the touch and the gaze of Jesus and the lifting of his head to be a saint, to be a servant, to be used. Without a test, you don't have a testimony. And here is Jesus, here is Peter, rather, writing to these dispersed believers and telling them that they have a living hope. So what's the hope in? It's not a dead hope, it's a living hope. He reminds them that this hope is not undefiled, it's, it doesn't perish, it doesn't rot, spoil, or fade. It reminds me of the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 6 when he talks about where your treasure is, your heart will be also. You put your money first and watch your heart follow, you do things, you, you, you follow his commands, and there's an investment that we can make. You and I have the opportunity in this life to make an investment, yes, financial, and with our hearts, our hearts will follow our finances, and we make an investment, and it's not in the things that rot, it's not in the things that fade. Moths don't come in and eat it. It's incorruptible. You You've seen things, uh, houses, uh, amusement parks. I rode by one on State Street just north of here. It used to be a go-kart place. It used to be an arcade. It used to have something there, and now it's just tough. It It has faded. It is defiled. It has, in essence, perished. And Peter is saying, hey, there is this hope. But here's what I love. This is no fairy tale. This is no fairy tale. Peter writes with realism. Are you suffering today? Is the world suffering? 
Are we divided? There's polarization. There's paralyzation. There's problems in our world today. And the worst thing we can do is try to avoid it or act like it's not there. And Peter does neither of those. He writes and says, let me talk to you a little bit about your suffering. Let me talk to you a little bit about your trials. Many years ago, there was a television commercial for the Enclave minivan. And the commercial was 30, only 30 seconds, and the, the, it shows a peaceful, tranquil scene of um, the Enclave minivan parked at a, a, a park, a, a municipal park. There were canopy roads, tree-lined streets, and a father is behind the steering wheel. A mother's in the passenger seat. There's a couple other kids in the back with a golden retriever. It's got to be a golden retriever. And a boy hops in with his fo- football helmet on. And he hops in, and they drive... They take a, just a nice drive down these suburban streets. And they show, they zoom in on the boy. He's got his football helmet under his arm and he's gazing out the window. And then it happened. Out of nowhere, a car comes careening into the intersection, barrels into them, blindsides them, and it fades to black. And the screen says, no voice, just the text. It says, didn't see that coming? No one ever does. And the viewer, by the way, let me say this. There was no, there is no Enclave minivan. There's a Buick Enclave. There are minivans, but there's no Enclave minivan. It was an ad created by the Ad Council and the National Department uh, Department of Transportation. The viewer, when you watch that, the viewer is violated the viewer is violated why because we know we didn't see it coming but we know how car commercials are supposed to act we do don't they pickup trucks right they they go over mountainous boulders uh, suvs carry the fellows through the forest to a waterfall uh, a sports car zips along windy curvy roads and minivans drop kids off at soccer practice that's how car commercials behave You see, there is no enclave minivan, but there are collisions. And Peter, in writing with this ragged edge of realism, one who had suffered, one who was writing to people in the midst of intense suffering, is saying, this is real. And he tells them later, and remember, we'll look at the whole book, but he tells us in the fourth chapter, don't be surprised by fiery ordeals, but seems like, more times than not, we're surprised when suffering comes our way. I mean, preachers like me can say it till we're blue in the face, till we run out of oxygen reading the passages. But yet, when it comes, there's something in us, there's something dormant in us, if we're honest. Okay, be honest with me for a second. There's something in us we act surprised when we have to suffer. Paul put it this way in Philippians 3.10. He says, we share in the fellowship, like we share in the power of his resurrection. Come on. Like, that's what I want. But we also share in the fellowship of his sufferings. Think of it like a buffet. I think they're illegal in COVID times. But remember buffets? You walk through a buffet. You're like, man, I want some of this. I want some of the, I want the steak with the gravy. I want the mashed potatoes with the gravy. I want the mac and cheese. I'll put some gravy on that. I want this and I want this and I want the peach cobbler. Like all of that is like the power of his resurrection. Like that's good stuff. Give me that. But the broccoli or the cauliflower is like sharing in the fellowship of his suffering. I, I don't want that. And Peter's saying, don't be surprised, because we're called to share in the power of his resurrection. Jesus brings new life. 
Jesus can resurrect what's dead in you. Jesus can give you hope when you are cynical and hopeless and on the, on the verge of despair right now. That's what Jesus can do. Man, I want to preach it. I want to believe it. I'm telling you, I've seen it in my own life. It's easy to talk about Peter, but I've seen some stuff in my own life. But we're called to participate in the fellowship of his suffering. Here's what trials, we, we can learn three things. You dig this up later, make sure I'm honest. Just from verses six and seven of chapter one, we can learn three things about trials. We'll put them all up at once here. It gives us three universal truths about trials themselves. They are distressing, painful, and difficult, not good, delightful, and easy. I'm just stating the obvious, okay? They are varied. They come in different forms at different times, and they last for different durations. They prove the genuineness of our faith just as gold is refined in the fire. Leave that up for a minute to ponder for a second. Dr. David Jeremiah says that suffering itself, it, it's, it's a clarifying experience. First of all, that's a great thought. Suffering itself is a clarifying experience in that what's unimportant falls away and what's very critical rises to the top. Has anybody seen that in your life? Man, if you take time today, think of me and this, email me. I'd love to hear your story. But suffering does it, and it's universal. Universal from ancient times, classical times to contemporary, young and old, all parts of the globe, all different faiths and variety of thoughts and isms and schisms. It happens to all of us when you go through something difficult and you are suffering and you feel hopeless to some degree. It is a clarifying experience. What is unimportant falls away and what is very critical can rise to the top. And that's what Peter is using, a very common biblical metaphor of the refiner's fire. Silver is tested and gold, the scripture talks about. And this refining work, I think we've probably heard this too many times, but that's what COVID has done to many of us. But it's not just 2020 yielding to 2021. There's so much there. St. Teresa of Avila had suffered greatly. Her story is remarkable. I'd love for anybody that's bored this week or sometime to study it. She said this about suffering itself. In light of heaven, the worst suffering on earth will be seen as no more serious than one night in an inconvenient hotel. In this letter, Peter has the gall to say the suffering that lasts a little while. Well, how could he say that? 1 Peter 1 and 1 Peter 4 reminds me of Romans 8. little chunk of scripture. This, uh, I want us to read it together. Romans 8, 18 to 27. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Look for the metaphors. How true is this? Where do you stand on climate control? Where do you stand on the earth and being caretakers of this planet planet for the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed for the creation was subjected to frustration not by its own choice but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope in hope 
that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time in the Paris Accord. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly. Can anybody feel me today? As we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this we hope we are saved. We were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts, would you let him today, knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. Uh, just moments before this service, I was in my office. It was pregame for me. Butterflies were rolling around in my stomach. I was looking at my sermon notes and praying for this day. And someone interrupts me. They open my office door and says, Pastor, would you pray for me? And they hit a knee. I didn't even say yes. He just walked to me and hit a knee. And he goes, pray for my, and he named somebody and he had tears and he was on his knee. And I prayed a sincere prayer, very brief prayer. And uh, he walked out with tears. He couldn't talk. You've been there? Are you there? Don't lose hope. For every follower of Jesus, for every genuine disciple, there's the Spirit of God within you. But notice the contrast of Romans 8 that Peter gives us in 1 Peter 1. We've read both today. But Paul talks about, at the first part of this, he talks about our present suffering. Like, name it, it's real. And you've got it, and you've got it, and you've got it, and you've got some, and you've got some, and it exists within us. This is our present suffering. And in no way are we saying that it doesn't exist. Atheism, a world without God, says that all suffering, all trials are random and meaningless. Therefore, you can draw the logical, linear conclusion that every child who dies, there'll be six, every child that dies of starvation, there will be a purported six million this year, that there will be no sense of justice, no second chance, and it will never be made right. Pantheism subscribes to the theory that God is in everything and therefore he is complicit. But the writers of the scripture tell us that when we see wrong and we sense wrong, we never deny its existence, but it ought to, it ought to make our blood boil. It ought to make uh, tears come from our eyes. We see it and we feel it. And the sense of wrongness in our world points us to a God who is righteous, who will make it right. We long for that. And the writers of scripture, what I love about this, to me, it is the um, intellectually, it is superior. It is freeing to rest in this. I'm not believing and not asking you to believe in a fairy tale or nursery rhyme or lullaby or some concocted story. But in us, our hearts and minds will tell us, we look at the writers of scripture and we see, we see them. Their language of lament is straightforward. It's very forthright. It's strong, and at times you would consider it even rude. God, you're asleep at the wheel. The writers of Scripture accuse God of abandonment. And are you afraid to express your heart to God? Are you afraid to not look at the evil and suffering in this world and for it to bother you? And in this, just some redemptive perspective here, Peter and Paul and Peter in 1 Peter 1 and 4 and Paul in Romans 8 says that this present suffering is not to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed. Stop for just a second. Illustration. 
let's say that it's the first day of the year, January 1st. And on January 1st, you're, you're in for a root canal, so it's not a good day. Happy New Year. And the, you have the root canal. I mean, it's a root canal. The anesthesia wears off, is wearing off. On your way home, you have a wreck and total your car. You get out and discover that, I mean, you're fine, but your car's totaled. But the car you hit is your spouse's car. She's fine, but the car's totaled. This could happen. It's possible. So both cars are totaled. You go home, and there's a foreclosure notice on your door. Within minutes, your boss texts you and tells you not to come into work tomorrow. Your job has been eliminated. You would say, that's a bad day. But on January 2nd, it, this could happen. Not wishing on anybody except a few of my enemies here. But uh, it could happen. Okay, so January 2nd, play along with this for a second. All right, present sufferings are not to be compared with the glory that's to be revealed. January 2nd looks up. In fact, it looks very up. The rich uncle that died just left you with $42 million. And you buy a dream home. In fact, play along with me, but Michael Jordan lives next door and he comes over to shoot baskets with you. Pretty cool gig. And you've, you've, you discover that a Tahitian island is up for sale. You talk to your spouse. They're down with it. You guys buy the island, the Tahiti island. It's yours. You are, get bored, uh, you know, a few, uh, a few weeks into that. You start a company. It's a, sort of a research and development company with some real creative, smart people. Uh, you end up making a lot of money, and you discover the cure for cancer. Friend checks in with you. When your friends check in with you, you're like, hey, man, you want to come to my dream home, maybe shoot some baskets to Michael Jordan, or you can come visit us. I'll fly you into my Tahitian island. So the end of the year comes, remember all that started January 2nd, so a friend checks in with you at the very end of the year and says, hey, how are you doing? You're like, man, I, you know, how was your year? I, I've had a good year. Yeah, but you know, I saw something, I've lost touch, but I saw something on Facebook. I mean, you had a tough day, didn't you? Wasn't the first day, oh, I mean, your root canal, the wreck, you lost your job, home foreclosed, and well, how would you respond then? You would probably go something like this in my silly illustration. You'd probably say, well, you know, yeah, I mean, that was, okay, yeah, I, I, I remember that, that was a... That was a tough day. That was one day of 364. And that, that one rough day, you know, I mean, it happened, but it, it doesn't compare to the other 364 that we've had this year. Now, let's say your suffering is a chronic illness that you have borne for years. Let's say you're in heaven one day and someone asks you, hey, you know, what about those 43 years that you suffered from this chronic illness? How would you respond? L let me tell you how you probably will respond. You may go, well, yeah, that was, that was many, many years, uh, uh, four and a, almost four and a half decades of chronic pain, but there were so many blessings. Every good and perfect gift is from above. And even in the midst of that, I had so many blessings, but I did suffer that pain. I did have those trials. I did have that suffering, but it refined me. And let me tell you, you know, th those uh, 43 years of chronic pain, I mean, yeah, yeah, I remember them sort of vaguely, but like they don't compare to the 529 million years that I've been here on the streets of gold because the present suffering is not to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed and if you can look past the, the preacher's silly illustration I want you to open your mind to think about the possibility of that as Lauren and the team make their way up we're going to sing and we're going to conclude this this hour in song and in communion.
And I take us back to the one who wrote this letter. Not right now to the ones it was written to, but to the one who wrote it. To the one who had boasted and then had been broken. To the one that said he would never fail. To to one who thought he was special and different. Who thought God just had for him the power of his resurrection. And not the fellowship of his sufferings and the reality of his own sin that had at times dominion over him. This living hope is just that. It's not a dead hope. And your hope, it does a few things. It dictates your personality or it lays the foundation for your personality. It dictates your purpose in life. It determines whether you can endure, whether you can overcome. And these trials, man, they are, they are distressing and painful and difficult, not good, smooth and easy. But they can have this refining work. And so today as we, as we take communion, I want to call us to worship. There's probably nobody out there or even in here that would accuse us of cannibalism today. This, uh, this cup, this, it represents the body of Christ broken for us. And you guys have them probably in your place. If you would take them out and... This has not been our practice, but this virus and the way we are doing things now, it's kind of a requirement. But look, the earthly and the ordinary can represent what is beautiful, what is spiritual, what is Jesus. On the night he was betrayed, he broke the bread, he gave thanks, and he said, do this in remembrance of me. And billions have. Communion was administered at a U2 concert it was practiced on the moon by US astronauts I've taken communion on four different continents in my lifetime but it's special to do it today it's special to do it today because it's in this moment and this is our faith family but would you take the cup as you peel back the the top part there it's two peels the top part represents the body of Christ as you take that as an act of worship you eat that remembering him and drinking the cup he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him would you stand and Lauren and the team are going to lead us before we go